we apologise for the poor quality of the following recording of a sermon by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Although we have digitally restored this to improve clarity, the quality is not as good as we would like. We do apologise for this, but nevertheless hope that this sermon will be a great encouragement and a blessing to you. I should like to call your attention and the attention of many of you once more to that great incident which is recorded in the third chapter of the book of Exodus, the chapter which we read at the beginning, which starts, you remember, like this. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. We began the consideration of this mighty incident last Sunday night, and I then explained that we were doing so because of its momentous character. It's one of those crucial incidents in the Bible which we ignore and neglect only at the greatest conceivable peril to our souls. An incident to which reference is made very frequently in the scripture itself. We are interested in it because it presents to us what is, after all, the great and the central message of the scriptures, and that is God's way of salvation. That's the one and only theme of this book. It states it in many different forms. But there is perhaps an advantage in having it in a particularly dramatic form like this. I'm never tired of pointing out the people uh, who say that they can't see any gospel in the Old Testament and who are sometimes surprised that when in a gospel service such as this should preach from the Old Testament, I'm never tired of saying that the real trouble with them is this. A man who doesn't see the gospel in the Old Testament is a man who doesn't see it in the New either. Because the moment a man sees this gospel in the New, he'll find it everywhere in the Old. And there is no doubt that that is why the Spirit of God led the early church to include these Old Testament scriptures with their new scriptures to form this book which we call the Bible. It's the same God in birth. It's the same covenant in birth. It's the same glorious purpose in birth. And indeed there's a sense in which you can't understand the new except you have the old and have some understanding of the old and its basic principles and postulates. So the result is that you get these great pictures, these great demonstrations, if you like, of salvation in the Old Testament. And there is none that is more notable than this one. I've suggested that in the very picture of Moses himself, we have it all. Here it is, you see, here's a man who spent 40 years looking after sheep. One of the most humble menial tasks a man could ever perform, especially in those days. Don't imagine that I'm saying anything against shepherds. I have a great likeness for them. Some of the best men in the world have been shepherds. But that was the kind of task and calling which it was at that time. Now this man was a man who had been brought up as the child of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He'd lived in the court in Egypt, and he had great prospects ahead of him. But you remember that he was a Jew and a Hebrew, and he knew it. And though he had these marvelous prospects, he couldn't forget the people to whom he belonged and certain things concerning them. He'd been taught them in his youth, God's purposes with respect to them. So he, in a sense, forsook all that for the sake of his people. He was concerned to do something for them. However, the plan went wrong, you remember. And he had to flee for his life. And there he is in this land of Midian, 40 long years looking after sheep. And I've no doubt that he'd become thoroughly discouraged, had long since come to the conclusion that nothing would ever happen. It would be the same humdrum experience for the rest of his life and the great dream and vision he once had in his youth of liberating his people would never come to fulfillment. And so, we just read in the most casual way, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert. Not a very promising place to go to. You wouldn't imagine there'd be much grass and fodder there. However, he'd probably exhausted the supplies elsewhere. He does this most ordinary thing in a most ordinary way on a most ordinary day. And suddenly, this amazing sight confronts him. The burning, flaming bush. And yet the bush was not consumed. Now, I say that the whole story of salvation is there. There's frustrated mankind. There's mankind that's become even cynical. And who's come to the conclusion long ago, the only thing to do in a world like this is to make the best of a bad job. And just go on, come day, go day, keeping things going, not expecting anything to happen. Oh, that's what sin does to a man. It so crushes his soul and his spirit that he even gives up hope of ever being put right. He's down, he's out. And then, suddenly and when he least expects it oftentimes, this amazing thing happens. And he learns for the first time that what matters in this life and in this world is not what man does but what God does. And he learns that God has done something, and he's confronted by it, and there it is. Now, last Sunday night, I called attention uh, hurriedly and very casually uh, to some of the general characteristics of this. In other words, uh, the merest pyro in these matters uh, must see at a glance that the great message of the scripture is the message of what is called revelation. A man is just leading a flock of sheep and looking for the pasture. And suddenly something arrests him. He's looking at something. Something has appeared before him. Revelation. That's the whole message of the Bible, isn't it? It is the revelation of God. And the revelation of men and sin. And the relationship of men and God. But it all comes from God. It's revelation. And what's gone wrong with us is that we've forgotten our fundamental category. We've all been talking about quests and seeking and searching and research. My dear friends, the gospel starts with an entirely different term. Revelation. What God does. What God sends. 
and here on the very surface uh, we come face to face with some of the great characteristics of revelation. That's the first, that it's always from God's side. I must emphasize that, whatever the consequences. The Bible starts by telling you and by telling me this, that we are in such a state and in such a condition that we can do nothing about ourselves. You don't like that. That's the gospel. By grace are he saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not an accident that the first word in the Bible is this, God. In the beginning, God. And that's the characteristic of the book. It's all from God's side. And then the next thing, obviously, is that you never know when it's going to happen. I like that. We always think we know, don't we? And we make our plans, but a man who's trust to his plans doesn't know the Bible. The people in the Bible were always getting surprises, as Moses had that afternoon. That was the last thing he expected, but it happened. You never know when. At any moment, most surprisingly, it comes. It's all of God, you see, and we can't understand, and we can't forecast, and we can't foretell, and we don't even want to if we know the Bible. But it comes in an unusual manner. Moses undoubtedly had his ideas as to how God would reveal himself if he did, but he never imagined it was going to be by a burning bush. But you read the history of the church. Go through your Bible, and you'll find that that's God's way. He never does anything in the way that we think. Who would have thought that when the Son of God left the course of heaven and came on earth, he'd ever to be seen lying in swaddling crouch in a manger, in a stable. That's what I call divine humor. Do you know what that means? Well, the great Apostle Paul, in a great burst of eloquence, put it, puts it like this, you remember. That's his way, says Paul, that's God's way of making foolish the wisdom of this world. And confounding the wise, sends his son to a stable, born of a virgin, most unusual, most unexpected. Ah, oh, but not only that mysterious. This book is burning and yet it's not consumed. It's on fire and yet it's still there. Impossible, but true, mysterious. If you don't read your Bible whenever you read it with the idea that you're going to read mystery, it's not surprising if you get nothing out of it. Come to the Bible expecting the mysterious, for it is mysterious. It's the mystery of godliness, says Paul again. And then the next thing, of course, is that it's miraculous. I don't apologize for miracles, I assert them. I've no gospel if miracles haven't happened. The whole of salvation is miraculous from beginning to end. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and the whole power of the Godhead in him. And it's miracle. This was a miracle. His birth was a miracle. His resurrection was a miracle. He worked miracles. It's all miracles. And to become a Christian is to undergo a miracle because it means a rebirth. Well, now all that is here in the burning bush, isn't it? That's where we left it last Sunday night. Well, now then we must proceed from that point. It's all supernatural and miraculous. 
Now there is a beginning, I say, and that is what happens. You consult any person who's ever become a Christian or formerly wasn't a Christian, and you'll find that in some shape or form, and to some degree, that's been his experience. Going along, doing his work, studying in his profession, running his business, living a married life, all the normal, ordinary things of the world on you go, and the man may have had certain ideas, but no, they've long since gone, he's given up, he's just now managing to keep going anyhow, somehow, and he's reached a stage in which he expects nothing. Suddenly, he's arrested. Something pulls him up, it doesn't matter what, the forms are almost endless in their variation. But we become arrested by the fact that there is something outside ourselves that is demanding our attention. Something, someone attacking us, and we don't quite know what. There are many in this congregation who know exactly what I mean. This great process sometimes starts in a very vague manner. A man just finds himself gradually becoming different. He doesn't know quite why or how, but he loses a taste for the things he used to like. And he can't get the same excitement, the same kick as he puts it out of them as he used to have. He's just aware that there's something happening to him. There is something there that he doesn't understand, he can't fathom it, but he's being disturbed by something and he's being arrested by something else. Oh, it may happen in an endless number of ways. A friend may invite him to a service or may ask him to go somewhere with him and listen to a message, and so on. Well, there it is, and he's aware of being oppressed, he's being arrested, and yet he doesn't know. No, that's excellent. That's the beginning. But you see, it's just at that point a very real danger arises. And that's the thing that is emphasized in this episode and in its account, isn't it? There's a very real danger at this point. And Moses fell into it. And Moses said, I read in the third verse, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt? Ah. He was a very able man, Moses. Learned in culture and cultured in the lore and the uh, learning of Egypt. We are told that about him. A highly intelligent person. And suddenly he becomes uh, confronted by a most interesting phenomenon. And Moses says, I will turn aside, uh, I'll leave the sheep there for the time being. I will turn aside and investigate this most entrancing, intriguing phenomenon. What a book the Bible is. How well it knows us. And how contemporary it is. What a perfect description this is of many a man. Oh yes, you see, something begins to happen, and then uh, what happens? Well, he begins, he becomes interested in the phenomenon. I'm not sure sometimes that this isn't perhaps uh, the great danger at this present hour. The interest in phenomena. Have you noticed it? I suppose it's an inevitable result when you have an exhausted condition in mankind. And we are all exhausted, let's admit it. The two world wars have exhausted us. We've been tried, our hopes have been keyed up so often, and the prophecies have been so brightened, but they've never been verified. The whole world of mankind is in a state of exhaustion. And always when you get people in that condition, they become interested in the odd. 
interested in phenomena. And there's a great deal of interest in phenomena today. I think people are much more interested in phenomena than they were, say, ten years ago. I mean by that when I use the term phenomena, they say the one thing that matters is, does the thing work? Is anything happening? Is anything taking place? If it is producing results, and if it is, well, they're interested. Interested in phenomena, a bush that's burning and yet not consumed. What is it? There are many people who are interested in religion as a phenomenon. There are many people who are interested even in religious experience as a phenomenon worthy of their analysis. Look out for this in the coming days. You'll find secularly minded men will be very interested in phenomena. That's their only interest in it, nothing else, not spiritual at all. But they're interested in anything odd, unusual, they don't care what it is. If it's conjuring, if it's spiritism, it doesn't matter. If something odd, unusual, inexplicably is taking place, they're always there and they're interested. As the Apostle Paul says, and they have eaten years, and they always want to hear something new, like the Athenians of old, and if there's a new phenomenon, they're after it, they must see it and investigate it. Moses did it all before them. We've all done it. We've all no necessity to plead guilty concerning it. Ah, this has come in phases. You know, there are people, and I've known some of them, who are very interested even in conversion as a psychological phenomenon. I remember once preaching and a minister came to me at the end. I'm sorry I said he was a minister. He was, unfortunately. He came to me at the end, and this is what he said to me. He said, you know, I don't agree with a word of what you say, but I thought you were doing something in this service. I didn't regard that as a compliment. The man didn't tell me anything about myself nor my preaching. He told me a great deal about himself. You see, though he didn't believe my truth, he was virtually saying, truth doesn't matter. What matters is that something's happening. He felt something vague. He wasn't interested in precise definition, but phenomena. It's an interesting phenomenon. And conversion, people say, so they've written their psychological studies of conversion and have attempted to explain it psychologically. Indeed, interest in religion itself can be something quite dangerous. If you merely approach it in this spirit of detached and almost academic inquiry, that, well, yes, it is, after all, one of the experiences of life, and therefore we must know something about it. And, of course, if your country and if you yourself and if the world happens to be in a bad state, well, if religion's got something to say or something to offer, well, let's have a look at it and let's see what it has got to say. Let's try it and see what's going to happen. Religion, as a phenomenon, a subject of study, something that you look on objectively from the outside. Now, Moses, I say, had fallen into this trap. He said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. But the moment he said it, God acted and God spoke. God will never allow that. And what I want to emphasize tonight is just this. That until you get out of that attitude, you'll never know the blessings of Christian salvation. You'll never know the greatest gift that even God has to give to men. That's a fatal attitude. And God saves Moses out of it by crying out unto him. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see in this spirit of speculation and mere intellectual inquiry, God called unto him out 
the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here am I, here am I. And then God began to speak to him. But you see, before anything can happen to this man, before the message can come to him, he has to listen, he has to be arrested in this way. And God said to him, Draw not nigh hither. Change your attitude at once. Put off your shoes from off your feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now this is absolutely vital and essential. And my dear friend, if you don't come to that, I say that the rest I'm going to say tonight will have no value for you. The approach is all important in these matters. But having arrested him in that way, now God begins to proceed to reveal himself to him and gives him the message. And what is the message? Well, here again is one of those great principles underlined in the Bible from beginning to end. God's first message to men in that condition is the truth about himself, about God. What God did to Moses was to speak about himself. Now that comes first. And it must always come first. Now here again is the point at which we all tend to go wrong, isn't it? We start with ourselves and our needs and what we want and what we desire and what we'd like to have. That isn't the first message. The first message is about God. And as I've already reminded you, that's what the Bible always does. The great message of the Bible is, I say, to remind us and to tell us that everything begins with God and everything ends with God. Of Him and from Him and through Him and unto Him are all things. I was never so seriously tempted to stop singing as I've been in this service tonight. I almost said now tonight, instead of singing these great words, let's recite them, so that we can think about them. I'm very fond of music, tunes appeal to me, but they can be dangerous. Because they carry us away, don't they, and we forget what we are singing. Take those great words we've already been singing in our three hymns. If only we realize the truth of those words, if we all only really believed them, what a transformation would take place. But we don't. And it's all due, I say, to the fact that we forget the God about whom we are concerned and with whom we have to do. But the Bible is very careful to warn us against this. Because this is its first and its greatest message at the very beginning to tell us and to remind us without end that the whole trouble with man is due to his wrong relationship to God. It's so obvious, and yet it's the thing we forget above everything else, that is the essential message of the Bible. That everything that goes wrong in man's life individually or collectively is ultimately due to the fact that man is in the wrong relationship to God. And that if we ever want to be put right, we must of necessity start here. And I want to go further and to say this. 
that if we don't talk correctly at this point, we'll be wrong everywhere else. Now I want to put that in this form. The test of any man's claim to have the Christian faith is finally what he says and what he believes about God and about his attitude to God. Now I want to say a word in a special manner tonight to evangelical people who are present. Often we evangelicals say to one another about men, Ah yes, he uh, spoke well, he spoke eloquently, he was learned, but you know, we say the man didn't, didn't even mention the name of Christ. Well, of course, we are quite right in what we say. Unless there are men who seem to be able to preach out of the Bible and they never mention the name of Christ. Christians who never mention the name of Christ. We say he didn't even mention the name of Christ. Quite right, my friends, but you know, your danger and mine is almost the exact opposite of that. I am almost afraid to say it, but I must say it. I sometimes think that I know Christians who never mention the name of God. I mean God the Eternal Father. They never seem to talk about him. But that's to be utterly unscriptural, and that indeed is to deny the message of the Bible. I say that the ultimate test of a man's profession of Christianity is what he tells me about God. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm emphasizing this. It is because we forget God, incredible though it may sound, that our methods go so wrong so frequently. Our methods, the church's methods, it's because God is forgotten. It is because we forget God that there's so little true holiness and godliness in the world at the present time. I'm speaking of the church as well as the world outside. We don't even use the term godly very frequently. We talk about people being keen instead of saying that they're godly. And you can be keen without being godly. And if God isn't there at the beginning, a man won't know why he needs to be put right with God. He wants a blessing, but what he needs is to be right with God. So if we don't start where God himself starts, how can anything be right? And it is because we forget God that we are no longer interested in doctrine. That's the great tragedy of the church in the last hundred years, her increasing loss of interest in doctrine, the great doctrines of the faith. And it's all because we don't start with God, we start with experience. We start on the exper experiential, the experimental level. And we're always anxious to get people to get something. My friends, we start by proclaiming God. And we do so because he does it himself. Moses, Moses, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground, and then I am the God of thy fathers, and so on. May I say it again at the, ex at the risk of being misunderstood? The whole business of Christianity 
its first business, its fundamental business, yea, its final business, is to bring us face to face with God. And a supposed gospel that doesn't bring men face to face with God is not a gospel, it's something else. And something else can give results. But this, its special concern, is to bring us, as Moses was brought there, face to face with God, with God himself. I asked the question last Sunday night. I don't apologize for asking it again. Have you met God? Do you know God? Have you come face to face with God? That's the biggest question you'll ever face. And I press it upon you because the day is coming when you'll have to face him. If this book is true, every one of us will come face to face with God. And the business of the preacher is to get men to do it now while the door of salvation is still open and while they still can be reconciled to him. Well, very well, what does God tell us about himself? Let me remind you of some of the things that we are told in this chapter. I'm not going outside it at all. What God reveals, in other words, is something like this. First of all, he gives this great revelation about himself, his own being, if you like, his own name. We must learn to go back to the Bible and to read it and to watch the names of God. I am, he says, the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And did you notice how he kept on repeating it? He's talking about himself. He's giving this revelation about himself. Yes, but then uh, that great statement, poor Moses, he was alarmed, he was terrified, he couldn't understand all this, he was overwhelmed. And he says, when I go and say that the God of our fathers has sent us, they'll say, what's his name? And God said, uh, tell them, Moses... I am that I am. You know, my friends, I'm almost afraid to say these things. For I'm standing on holy ground and you are. And I'm talking like this, the pygmy that I am in this pulpit, about this great and eternal being. I am. That's all. I am. Nobody else can say that. I am. What am I? I am that I am. All the authorities say that it might be translated also. I shall be what I shall be. Of course, if he is what he is, he will be what he will be. He was what he was. It means his eternity. The eternal and everlasting the self-existent God, the changeless God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God that was, the God that will be, God. How often have we stopped to think of that? How often have we paused to contemplate the being, the character, the nature, the attributes of God? Well, he revealed them to Moses. Who shall I say? Say, I am hath sent me. The one who created everything out of nothing. 
the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The power of God, his strength, his might, his absolute qualities and potentialities, the being of God, the majesty, the greatness of God. Go through your Bible and observe what happens to men who have come anywhere near God. They all fall to the ground. They all get afraid as Moses did here. They hide their eyes. They put their hands upon their mouths with Job. They say, hide us. The sight, the thought of God, the mere hem of his garment, if I may use that anthropomorphism, is enough. The majesty of God. No man shall see God and live. Even this man who was given this special revelation, this man Moses, when God put him in the cleft of the rock, he was only allowed to see his hinder parts, as we are told. No man can look into the face of God and live in a world like this. That's God. And then his holiness. Take off, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Who can describe the holiness of God? Well, the Bible is full of its terms and its illustrations. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, you and I can't conceive of that. We don't know of any light that has no darkness in it. Our brightest lights have darkness in them because you can always have a more powerful one. The flash of the explosion of the atom is nothing when you put it by the side of this. God is light, essential light, and in him is no darkness at all. Can you imagine what that means? God is of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. Our God is a consuming fire. Now people are troubled, they tell me, by this whole concept of law, and they can't see why before a man can be saved and reconciled to God, you need to have this doctrine of the atonement and the death of the Son of God upon the cross. They say they can't see any necessity for this. Do you know their trouble? I'll tell you, their trouble is this. They have no conception at all of the holiness of God. That's their trouble. Nothing else. You see how vital it is to start at the beginning. How can a man believe the doctrine of the atonement if he hasn't understood the doctrine of the holiness of God? He can't. I don't expect him to. I can understand he's getting some sort of an experience, but he can't understand the cross and why the Son of God rarely had to die if he doesn't start with an understanding of the utter absolute holiness of God. And you see what salvation really means is this dwelling in the presence of God, having communion and fellowship with God. And as the Apostle Paul again argues so perfectly, there is no communion between light and darkness. There can't be. There is no mean, even as Aristotle put it, there is no mean between two opposites. It's impossible. They cease to be opposites if you can find a mean. And God is unutterably holy. And heaven is a place that is absolutely holy, without any sin, without any blackness and darkness. And we are told that without holiness, 
No man shall see the Lord. If I may venture dare to say such a thing, my friend, the doctrine of the atonement is an absolute necessity for this reason only, that God cannot tolerate any sinful, any, anything sinful in his presence. It couldn't live there. It would be thrilled. It would burn into nothingness. And before I can be in the presence of God, I must have the holiness of God himself. You see, it's a waste of time to be arguing about miracles and as to who Cain's wife was. The problem is this. How can you stand in the presence of that burning light? That's the question. How can men in sin have any fellowship and communion with this holy and eternal being? But thank God, the revelation he gives doesn't stop at that. He goes on to tell us about his own covenant and his purpose. Did you notice some of these tender things that were said here? I haven't time to deal with them tonight. I merely give you a little list to go home and think about and to face and to meditate about and to ponder. Just think of it, my friends, this God whom I've been trying to describe to you so feebly, this eternal being, this absolute being, this majestic, glorious God, who is so holy that we can't conceive of it. Did you notice what he said about himself? I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. And then one of the most tender moving things I think in the whole Bible, for I know their sorrows. We talk about paradox. That's paradox. This almighty, everlasting, holy, eternal God sees you and me. Here's our crying and our tears and our groaning and our wretchedness. He knows our miseries. He tells all this to Moses. Think of his pity. Think of his compassion. And then he goes on to outline and to reveal his great and gracious purpose. Listen to him. You don't find the gospel in the Old Testament. Listen to this. And I am come down to deliver them. That's Bethlehem. God coming down. He's announced it here, and he came down many times before Bethlehem in what are called the Theophanies, in these appearances of the angel of the covenant. But the whole movement of salvation is just that God, this eternal being, coming down to mankind in its wretchedness, its pity, its slavery, its shame in sin, and coming down to deliver Yes, and I end with this. He revealed also the certainty of the plan. I rather like this. He gave Moses the mandate and he told him uh, what he was supposed to do. But then he went on to say this. He said, and I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. 
No, not by a mighty hand. And I imagine Moses saying, well, very well, you're raising my hopes and now you're dashing them again. I've given up long ago. I was afraid of Pharaoh and what he might do to me. You gave me a new hope and now you say, you're certain that Pharaoh will not let us go. You're right, I know he won't. But listen. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And he did. As far as I'm concerned, that's the whole gospel. You and I and all of us as a result of sin are in the hands of someone infinitely more powerful and infinitely more fiendish than Pharaoh, the devil. The devil. The god of this world. And you try to fight him. You try to get free. You try to make new resolutions and turn over a new leaf. You put your back into it all and you failed and you failed miserably. And the gospel seems to say, here's a way out. You say, how can I? And here's the answer. He will let you go. And when the Son of God came down, he defeated him. And he's bound him. And in Christ all are free from the kingdom of Satan and have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's the gospel, the message which tells us that this almighty eternal being has looked upon us, has looked upon you, knows you, sees your vain, futile struggling and endeavor, Hears your sighing and your groaning in your captivity of sin. He hears it. He feels it. He knows your sorrow. And because of it, he sent his only son down amongst us into this world. He came as a babe and lived as a man. And he fought the devil and finally rampant him on the cross. And answered the law and fulfilled all its demands. And God punished your sins upon him. And neither the devil nor hell nor anything else can prevent your knowing the glorious liberty of the children of God. If you but believe this message and accept the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.